Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, I'm happy to be joined this morning by two wonderful guests. My first, Makoto Fujimura, known as Mako, is a renowned artist and author, most recently of the book, Art and Faith, A Theology of Making. Welcome to you, Mako. Thank you. It's great to be here. Also joining us this morning is the venerable Yishan Kian, a fully ordained nun or bhikkhuni in the Chinese Buddhist tradition, who is currently serving as a residential minister at Georgetown University. Welcome to you, Yishan. Thank you. Nice to meet you. So glad to have both of you here on the program this morning. There's so much that I am excited to talk to you about, um, and I hope we'll have enough time to explore fully some of the themes that I know so many people in the world are thinking about these days as they move through these uncertain times, uh, how to process loss and trauma, how we go about rebuilding, how we find acceptance of both the good and the bad that life presents us. Um, but I want to begin, as we do most episodes, by simply asking each of you to share a bit about your stories, particularly how faith and religious practice has informed your worldview. So, Mako, I, I believe that you decided to become a Christian as, as a young, young man, a young adult. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I was cognizant of my faith at 27, although I, I, I tell people that I was inverted into a photo of Christ rather than converted because I, I always felt the presence of God when I painted or I, I was making. Um, even I, I remember as young as um, two or three um, painting something, uh, a painting that my mother kept actually, um, and I, I don't remember painting this particular painting, but I, I know um, when I was working on something, there was this energy that went through me, and I, I recognized it very early on that that was um, that, that was not mine. It was it was a gift, and 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 I thought everybody had this experience, you know, until I went to middle school in New Jersey and, and learned, learned that these things are best kept to yourself, you know, and uh, so I didn't really think much of it until in, in college I, I began to take seriously my calling uh, as an artist even though I didn't grow up in a religious home I used that word to talk about my art because it felt the closest word that I can find was was a religious word of you know being called to do something or uh, and and so so that that was always connected and and when I was back in japan i was born in boston but spent considerable amount of time in uh in japan um and uh, in kamakura where um, a, a lot of buddhist temples are actually and uh, i began to um use traditional uh, japanese uh, aesthetic and method and learn 17th century 16th century aesthetics and um and 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 strangely enough, it was that was when I, I felt the I, I heard the voice of Christ um, through through art, through literature, through obviously the Bible. But um, and um, that's that's when I became cognizant. Of what 
Was there was there a particular moment that that helped you encounter yeah. Christianity, or or how how was it that you were you were introduced to some of these ideas that uh, started that period of study? Yeah, my journey was like a slow trickle. Um, of, you know, um, my my eyes being open slowly, but. I was reading a poem by William Blake, uh, of all people, um, this epic poem called Jerusalem uh, in my little apartment in Tokyo. And I, I all of a sudden understood, um, I connected the dots, you know, I, I, I understood this experience that I had painting uh, was from uh, the voice of Christ. There, there was this uh, almost like a identical match, you know, and 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 so I was stunned, really, um, and and to hear the voice of Christ through William Blake's poem is also, I guess, an artist way of you know finding um, finding a home. That's right. That's right. Well, it's interesting that um, that this uh, Christian identity it seemed to emerge at the same time that you were also deciding. You wanted to commit yourself to being an artist. Is that true? Yeah, there's there's definitely an overlap. I, I I think I think you're right to connect those two. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, Yishan, for you, um, you have a a, uh, a a different life path, I'm sure, but um, but it sounds like you also uh, felt a strong calling at a young age. Uh, when did you decide to become a a Buddhist nun, a bhikkhuni? Okay. Um... I became a bhikkhuni in when I was 25, but um, I grew up in a small city in China. My parents uh, were both high school teachers. They didn't have any religious beliefs, so I knew nothing about religion before I went to the university and learned about some spiritual traditions. I majored in philosophy in the university, so I had opportunity to learn different religions. So I visited a Buddhist monastery for the first time when I was 23. And I stayed there for a week and found that I really loved to live in a Buddhist community. So because of that experience, I started to read more about Buddhism and got to know more Buddhist friends. Then after two years, I got a chance to be ordained into the Buddhist order to become a bhikkhuni and seriously um, became a religious person. And how, how was it for your, your family? You said you were growing up in a non-religious family. So for uh, their child to choose this uh, very different path then uh, to be so committed to a religion, was it a shock to them? Were they supportive of it? I think my parents are very open person so um they they don't know about religion but they are open to my choice right so i think they both wish me to have a to live a happy life that's all they want so it doesn't matter what i do i think for them it's just like a different choice of like career a job <laughs> <laughs> Right. And plus, you have a nice you have a nice job uh, in the U.S. <laughs> so, yes. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted. I was in. I was curious about that. Um, tell us a little bit about what it means to be a bikuni. Um, what are what are your responsibilities and practices? Um, you know, for example, are there are there aspects to to being a a monk that are different? Being in a city like Washington D.C. versus, say, if you were in a monastery on top of a mountain, like we maybe imagine, what it would be like being a nun or a monk. There are many different forms of Buddhist practice, right? So you can choose. You can always choose one that you like most. So it always depends on the like the environment, either in the city or in a mountain. So if I if I if I want, I can always like return to a mountain, return to a temple, to a monastery, and do my practice. But I think it's kind of my aspiration. Like I want to um, serve the people in the city, like in a university, and help them to at least like enjoy the university. University it's a Catholic university. So, but there are more than two hundred. Buddhist student here. So before I came here, there are no like Buddhist um, like religious person living here. Um, the so as long as I'm here, <laughs> I think some of the students they, they, they can feel that they are supported. Marco, let's let's talk a little bit about this idea of a theology of making. Yeah. What does this mean to you, both as an artist and a Christian? Theology of making um, came uh, as a natural way for me to connect my artistic practice. And, and as I've said, um, you know, I felt from when I was a child <laughs> that ma making allows me to tap into a certain reality uh, with a capital R. And, and, and then I went through a phase, of course, um, understanding the religious side of Christianity and learning all of the, you know, various denominations and history and, and, and being a leader in the church myself, uh, realizing in, in some sense the limitation of the organized institutional side of Christianity, um, as well as its benefits. And um, I began to um, look at how is it that the institution of Christianity or any, any even, even talking about theology does not address this experience that I had as a child, which is this kind of direct experience of presence of God in the midst of making. And now this is something that I did very naturally from very early on, um, you know, becoming a photo of Christ, reading William Blake is, is an indication of how much this has been embedded in, in, in my journey from, um, you know, beyond, uh, probably beyond <laughs> before I was born that, you know, I was kind of set up for this path, but at, at the same time, when I became cognizant of my own uh, commitment to my faith and, and becoming um, dedicated photo of Christ, I, I realized that, you know, where is a place where I can 
connect these dots. And uh, every time I read the Bible, it seemed, you know, here, here's a book uh, that speaks about the creator and, and how God created the universe and us um, without needing to and out of pure love. And, and then, you know, we failed um, to understand stewardship and uh, love in that way. And, and then, you know, Jesus came and, <laughs> and showed us what that really would look like. And, um, and all of that, and Jesus spoke in parables, you know, 75% uh, of the Bible is in poetic form. Uh, and yet you you hear sermons uh, that that are very propositional and linear and mm. uh, you know it, it might make sense but it doesn't really move into making what i call somatic knowledge of making which is using your hands directly touching uh the earth as uh, our a gardener would, you know, um, or a carpenter, and, maybe or a carpenter. <laughs> yes, or a carpenter, correct, or or any kind of knowledge that uh, even like cooking, you know, right, right, and and right. and we have divorced that aspect of knowing from theology, and and so this this was something that I kept very quiet, you know, just to myself. I I wrote a book called Culture Care. Um, I was telling Ishan that I was in DC for quite a bit. And because of, um, I was appointed to be on the National Council on the Arts and uh, traveled around the country advocating for US arts. And, and I realized in the midst of culture wars, uh, we need to care for culture. You know, we need to change the metaphor uh, from this battleground mentality to caring for the soil of culture and tending to it and as a as a farmer would uh you know his or her land and and taking care of the ecosystem of culture rather than fighting over it um all the time and and when i was writing that i realized that the, the uh, what i was writing was uh, in essence uh, this connected to the direct experience of god in my studio and um how jesus the shepherd you know takes us out into the pastures and and you know we are like lost sheep and can you know uh, gets lost all the time but you know the good shepherd takes care of us and that kind of relationship and adventure really um is all, all often missing from um you know how how we view the, the gospel and and so I, I began to take note of these things and wrote a book actually culture care and then realized that this was largely a theological work um and theology of making undergirds culture care and i i uh, all those notes um the book itself is one third of what i have written over the years and um many observations about the bible itself being a uh, book primary about creativity and imagination and creation and new creation um, as well as it is about redemption um, but it is not necessarily trying to fix the world back to Eden but it is to create co be in, being invited to co-create into the new creation.
Mako, you know, part of what you, um, uh, you work on, not only in your painting, you've also uh, explored uh, this art of kintsugi. And I wonder mm -hmm. if you would share sure. a little bit of, of what the tradition of, of kintsugi is, is about and how that connects to these ideas of, of, of healing. Yes. When I was studying Japanese aesthetics of 17th and 16th century, I, I was a national scholar, um, actually sent over as an American because I have American citizenship. And But I, I was able to access um, so many uh, venerable traditions of Japan, including Zen Buddhism. And uh, I had access to the best museums and temples and, and um, and uh, you know, I, I take a look at these artifacts. And one of the discoveries that I made was through tea tradition of Senrikyu um, of 16th century Japan. Uh, during the feudal war era, uh, there was this Buddhist monk who practiced uh, and, and refined Japanese art of tea. And he, he instead of talking about, as in Western terms, perfection uh, resulting uh, from aesthetics and design, he talked about imperfections. And and out of that tradition came this form of kintsugi, which is kin is gold and tsugi is uh, to mend or to pass it down to next generation. Um, and it this uh, actually originated uh, most likely in China and Korea, uh, came but came over to Japan as a distinct way of looking at imperfections as an entry point uh, into beauty. So instead of when when an important teaware breaks, uh, as Japan has many earthquakes, um, instead of fixing it to look perfect and and hiding the flaws, let's say. Uh, Japanese artisans began to mend using Japan lacquer and accentuating the fractures of gold. And Japanese tradition is such that such a mended kintsugi bowl is far more valuable than the original. And so this this idea is... is uh, um, very different from Western concept of beauty. And when I wrote uh, a book called Silence and Beauty, reflecting on 17th century aesthetic and Shusakendo's novel Silence, which which is a profound novel about that time, and Martin Scorsese's film, um, it, uh, had, it gave me an opportunity to talk about this. Uh, you know, Silence and Beauty talks about uh, Likyu's tradition, and more recently, I befriended a kintsugi master in Tokyo. This young kintsugi master wanted to use kintsugi to mend, start to bring heating to northern Japan after the uh, earthquake, great earthquake and tsunami uh, that wiped away fishing villages and so many um, grief um, and uh, people who are going through difficulties. Uh, he wanted to bring kintsugi to them. And so he kind of developed or discovered uh, another way of doing um, Japan lacquer, which, which is based on cashew nuts rather than poison sumac, and um, brought these little tubes literally in a medicine bag up to northern Japan to 
not just Duke and Tsugi for people, but to do it with them. So children will be sitting around with him, uh, bringing their uh, whatever remained in their homes. Uh, and with all the memories attached to um, the uh, grandfather and grandmother who got washed away or whatever that may be, and began to work with them. So I was tremendously moved by the story, and I, I invited him to come to U.S., and um, and we started a thing called Kintsugi Academy, uh, which uses his uh, way of doing Kintsugi, uh, which, which can be done in three hours, and anybody can learn to do this. And uh, as a way of heeding that this was before the pandemic, um, we had no idea that this would be happening um, you know, to all of us. Um, and, and now <laughs> my wife, Ejin, who um, runs an a, a organization called Embers International, which is a, um, uh, a, she's an attorney uh, trying to end uh, human trafficking in our generation. And uh, she's taken up this as a way to bring beauty and justice together. Uh, <clears throat> so we're, we're currently developing leaders um, so that they can uh, run Kintsugi workshops. What a beautiful way to to help people as they're as they're processing their trauma through through right. art and what they have. Yishan, I want to I want to pick up the conversation with you. I think that what I'm what I'm hearing from from Mako in terms of this uh, the Kintsugi practice um, is part of uh, part of the lesson um, from from healing or thinking about trauma is is not necessarily to find a way to go back to normal or back to the way that we were, um, but really finding our way to acceptance and seeing the beauty in, in the person that we are today um, and, and accepting both that the trauma happened and that we are essentially a new person for having experienced it. So does that, does that connect with some of your uh, mindfulness practices as well? Yes, I think um, we already see that Buddhist practice or um, mindfulness practice is that uh, an action or a practice of the being model, not the problem fixing or problem solving model. Mm-hmm. So the being model, we we are just who we are. So you don't need to fix anything. I think the American culture, like in our in 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 the culture people usually tend to fix the problem and want to get better. I think that's quite normal. But um, Buddhist practice, especially for the meditation, I think I mentioned about the different kind of meditation practice uh, they did for a student. Um, If they learn, if they have learned the skill of meditation, they know how to center their mind, how to find a balance, between mind and body, that will be very helpful. I'm also curious about how um, how you have been working with your students. Um, obviously, this has been such a difficult time for for all of us, really, on a collective level, a societal level. Um, but particularly as we, you know, sort of call back to uh, what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, this pivotal moment uh, where, you know, as young people, each of you uh, were on your uh, chosen life paths 
certainly so many other students that I'm sure you're interacting with at Georgetown are also uh, uh, coming into their own, but amidst these these really challenging uh, circumstances of the pandemic. So I'm curious, what are what are some of the Buddhist teachings and practices that that you're helping uh, to bring to them for for uh, healing and to work through some of the difficulties that they're facing in this period. So I'm a resident minister at the university and my role is not a Buddhist teacher, but a spiritual friend for students um, of different backgrounds. So I usually send two updates to students every week by email. Uh, which includes some readings on mindfulness practice and my reflections. They can email me, ask questions, and schedule one-on-one meeting with me. So the campus ministry pro- um, program, they sponsored a virtual retreat called Contemplation in Daily Life for students of different religious orientations. So I served as a facilitator for the Buddhist edition. I also facilitated a weekly Buddhist meditation session for students. So basically, we do uh, guided meditation for 30 minutes. I think Buddhist practice um, is built on a threefold foundation of listening, um, contemplating, and meditating. They are referred to as the three kinds of wisdom or three kinds of knowledge. So I also use these three approaches for helping students uh, in the face of change and uncertainty. Hmm. At, you know, uh, Mako, the, the, on our last episode, we talked a little bit about um, uh, even how there is a, uh, uh, a Christian con- contemplative practice, a meditation mm-hmm. practice as well. And I'm curious for, for you, as you, as, as you hear... Um, uh, Yushan's comments um, mm-hmm. about the the Buddhist tradition. Um, how you know how does how does that connect? I think to to how you uh, approach um, your your faith and and again connecting it uh, to mm-hmm. your art because it seems like there is a, a lot of you know um, uh, intentionality and mindfulness that goes into mm-hmm. uh, the work that you're doing. Yeah, so culture care is a mindfulness a practice into culture. So it, it is exactly what Ishan is saying, uh, being mindful, you know, rather than resorting to violence, uh, which is culture wars. Uh, culture wars may be rhetoric, but it, it does lead to violence, as we have seen. Um, and before, you know, anything can get to that point, um, we, what we should have done was practice what Dr. King and Gandhi has, you know, given us the language of peace and language of civil disobedience uh, through peaceful uh, ways. <clears throat> and we, the, of course, we are frustrated that that have seemed to go, it doesn't go anywhere, but but that's that's wrong because it, it is doing something. <laughs> uh, first of all, as Ishan said, you know, if we can change our mind, uh, how the neurons pathways flow, um, we can change the world. Um, and, and yet we don't have in, in Christian circles typically <clears throat> this um, way to practice that, even though we have ample uh, tradition of this in monastic traditions and, and in so many ways we have 
we we can learn from uh, brothers and sisters and uh, other traditions as well. But we we're, we're so uh, not interested in that it seems. So so part of cultural care is to bring together these integrated ways of how body and our mind and our souls and our spirits can uh, connect. Um, and and artists uh, tend to be good at this because they are very somatic beings uh, that <laughs> have trained themselves to have the discipline to connect the body and the mind. And and when when we are making anything, whether it be omelets or uh, you know art, um, we are using the totality of our beings, and and that allows us to um, understand the world. And e- even as fractured and as violent as it is in front of us, um, we we can somehow tap into the abundance of the new rather than uh, resort to uh, the scarcity mindset, the Darwinian struggle. We're at so many overlapping pieces of trauma that are happening right now, not just the, you know, the, the, the worldwide pandemic, obviously um, the, the fight for racial justice that is, that is uh, uh, continuing day after day. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I also feel like I need to recognize that there's this specifically documented rise in anti-Asian violence in our country. So I really want to, I want to ask for the both of you, how um, this has, as perhaps each impacted your communities, your families, um, how you've been processing this on an, on an individual level. Um, Yishan, any reflections on that? Yes. So I, I don't have a Buddhist community here in DC, but I have participated in a Buddhist learning group called Luminous Wisdom Meditation Group since 2016. So we have group meetings online for about two and a half hours per week. So in this group, um, we talk about um, like the issues about anti-Asian and also um, during the pandemic, especially, and some of the group members uh, feel anxious and depressed because of the pandemic, and some of them lost their families or friends. So our group sharing and practice are very supportive. So in the group, uh, we practice and reflect on the four thoughts that turn the mind. So first, the freedoms and advantages of precious human birth, human rebirth. And second, the truth of impermanence and a change. Third, the working of karma, and that means action, cause, and effect. And mm. fourth, the suffering of living beings within samsara, within this world. So I think those discussion in our um, discussion um, from the Buddhist perspective, violence is derived from false thought and attachment. The Buddhist teachings are grounded in a clear recognition, uh, recognition of suffering and an ethical commitment to non-harming and an mm-hmm. understanding of interdependence. Mako, I, I wonder for you as well, this, these ideas, these themes of, of, of interdependence and, and yeah. recognizing that, um, particularly in, amidst uh, 
this you know fractured time mm -hmm. that we we're experiencing in our mm -hmm. country yeah i know that word jumped out at me into dependence and um i have been for past five years when i was in pasadena worked with young group of uh students who um turns out i i, I selected them but I, I didn't realize how diverse <laughs> they were hmm. and, and we went through the um of course uh, the, the the ongoing um, struggles that we have toward racial um, reconciliation and Black Lives Matter and and all that is going on, the fractures and and, and uh, culture wars. Um, and I, for my last presentation at for the seminary, I. I um, it's it's on video. You can see it. Uh, but I talked about interdependence of color theory and the way i do this is quite unique and i i started to do this when i was a national council member soon after 9 11 walking around washington dc trying to help people understand why the arts are important to as an antidote to cultural wars and polarities and rhetoric um and and real wars <clears throat> and, and um i i used to i i still do but carry around a little jar of tabasco sauce <laughs> okay and, and, uh, tabasco sauce design is iconic uh it hasn't changed since uh 1800s uh that much and it uses as, as you can see in your mind right the orange and the green design <clears throat> um and it, it, if you learn color theory uh for painting you learn that those two colors are called complements or opposites of, of the color wheel and if you are a young uh, student learning to paint, you uh, the teacher tells you to avoid putting those two side by side because they are going to jump jump too much, and, mm. and it will be hard to create harmony and make your painting beautiful. Well, you know, if you go to a museum, uh, look at some of the paintings by Matisse. And he does this all the time. <laughs> you know, he was a master painter who can use the greens and oranges uh, in, in harmonized way. So I call this theory of interdependence, uh, or the, mm. sometimes I say it's a, this is a declaration of interdependence <laughs> rather than declaration right. of interdependence. Um, <clears throat> because um, for us to learn to live with each other, it's not that we wipe away our differences or you know um, what what is even the fractures. Um, it, it's that we recognize that through the fractures, uh, we can we can find a way to deal with these complements, uh, even if the color is opposite. Like, why does Tabasco sauce stand out on the shelves in the supermarket? Well, it stands out because it uses these jarring colors that says what? You know, it says it's spicy, <laughs> right? And it, it works so beautifully, right? And I, 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 I told uh, some of the leaders in DC um, if I have my my you know two minutes with them, I say, well, demo democracy needs to be spicy. <laughs> it's it's okay to have differences, but you have to have a master artist, you know, a leader who who can deal with the, these differences and bring them together in, in a beautiful way. And we have to be committed to each other enough to listen to each other, no matter how much of a disagreement you may have, 
you know, it, it's, it's, uh, that's, that's, that's only the beginning of our journey into a true democracy rather than seeing it as, as a, you know, inevitable end. Um, mm. We, we, we can begin th- seeing ourselves as artists um, and, and musicians, you know, by the way, th- this happens in jazz. Uh, right. This happens in music, um, as well as uh, visual arts and dance as well, uh, use of our bodies. So there are all these examples where um, we can learn to um, not only live with each other, but live for each other. And, and th- those are practices that, you know, artists can teach us. I want to just hold some time as we wrap up our our hour together, uh, as we always do, to uh, see if each of you have questions for for each other. Um, and uh, you know, we hold some time here to to see if there's anything that you might want to know more about each other's traditions or life stories or anything you may have misunderstood, so that we can model a constructive and respectful dialogue without being afraid to roll up our sleeves and get into some interfaith ish. So, uh, Mako, I want to ask if you have any questions for Ishan. Uh, yeah. So, Ishan, I, um, as I said, spent considerable amount of time in Kamakura, uh, Japan. Have Have you ever been to Japan? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I have been to China. I've been to Kunming, and you know, other places. I think your tradition um, uh, has uh, has flowed out of um, and um and, and your faith and um in kamakura japan there's an interesting history uh, relationship between um uh, hidden christians of 17th century uh because christianity was banned for 250 years um uh, by tokugawa shogunate in uh late uh, you know 16th and 17th centuries that went on for 250 years um Many Christians, uh, it seems, were uh, protected by Buddhist priests, um, and especially in Kamakura, there are visible evidences of this. And I, I wondered um, if you may be aware of, uh, you know, uh, the relationship between Christianity and Buddhism that is not, you know. Um, something that is of a conflict but um if if there was if you know of any examples in china that may have um, been part of your um creating peace experience i don't know much about the history like in japan Mm -hmm. um and also in china um i think in recent like 20 years um, Buddhism start to really develop in China in mm. recent recent twenty years. Um, also, it depends on uh, the like the how to say that. Um, and when when I came to I came to study came to study at uh, in America in the United States since 2015. So before 2015, I lived in China. I, I lived in China in the temple. And I, I, didn't, I didn't have um, too much chance to 
to get to know about the Christian community, you know. Mm. So, mm. Yeah. Um, and for the conflict, um, and there are five main religious traditions in China, and we have uh, some like governmental um, government department to um, we have like meetings for all those for all those five traditions mm -hmm. so we can have meetings with them and have communication with them mm -hmm. i think that's very uh, in a very harmony way <laughs> yeah so i didn't see but i know like in um, for some people for some people who really care about those um, different different traditions, they will have some conflict in, but not in a mm -hmm. cultural level or in yeah. the religious level, but just their own yeah. because of yeah. their own yeah, personality, personal. you know, their own personality, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. they have much like anger or strong feelings towards someone else. I don't know. I, I don't think that's a problem that can we can we can really fix it or we can really helps them mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. so when we talk about the peaceful um the peace and the calm and loving kindness mm -hmm. um i think both buddhism and and christian energy we talk a lot about love right that's mm -hmm. a very yes. general um values we like i think every human being mm -hmm. every human being and every religious tradition we can always yes talk about this issue, talk about love <laughs> in the yes. human, humanity level. Yeah, and it's great that you are at Georgetown to <laughs> explore <laughs> this Hadith connection between the Jesuit uh, tradition and uh, your, uh, your faith uh, as a Buddhist. Yushan, do you have any questions for Marco? Yes. Um, uh, I mentioned that I watched the video, uh, watch the video on your website, and I heard about the concept of slow, slow painting. Yes, I think that's very interesting. And could you yeah. tell me more about that? Yeah. So the way I paint is, is, is intentionally slow. I, I use pulverized minerals, um, which are done by generations of artisans in japan actually so i don't pulverize them myself but uh, they, there's an ecosystem of what's known as nihonga japanese style paintings that um, creates paper silk uh, minerals and then i in my studio i am literally making paint mixing them by hand and so it takes it takes a long time before I can do the layers, and then the layers take a long time to dry, and uh, you know you can use other materials today, and uh, many people do, but I intentionally connected the contemplative practice of um, slowing down, um, and 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 this this way of painting uh, suits my. Uh, expression and suits my personality as well um, uh, and I I have been uh, calling what I do slow art um, and and also people who come to see my works I tell them often it will take uh, at least 10-15 minutes before you can even see my <laughs> paintings uh, they are multi-layered um, so sometimes there's like 80 layers uh, 80 to 100 layers before I begin to paint 
So, uh, and each of these layers are done with prismatic uh, refractive elements. So that they, you know, you might come in and see a green painting, but after 10, 15 minutes, it turns out to be uh, prismatic and like rainbow colors uh, once your eyes adjust. I had a privilege of exhibiting at the museum at Gonzaga University uh, two years ago. And the, the most beautiful thing that happened was, was that these retired priests who were uh, there in, in the center there, lives there, uh, began to use my exhibit as their morning contemplative uh, meditation uh, uh, gatherings. Um, and then students began to join them. And they told me that, you know, after uh, 15 minutes, but also after, you know, daily walking in there, they, it, 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 it really helped them to uh, gain their perspectives and, and to reconnect uh, with, with the sacred. So that, that's uh, uh, the greatest uh, uh, commendation that I can have. Um, and, and I'm grateful for that. And I think that's part of the connect, connection of uh, you know, slow art and, and uh, meditation and contemplative uh, faith. That's a beautiful experience. That's so. I, I uh, I'm I'm looking forward to the next opportunity that I can yeah. I can uh, jump in a car and and come to see some of your your paintings live <laughs> yeah. and and just sit for hours in front of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wonderful. Well, so before before we go, um, uh, because we've talked so much about so many deep concepts so far in this conversation, I also think it's valuable for us um, when we're having these reverent discussions about religion and our practices that we remind each other that we're also uh, each wonderfully complex human being. So I, I wanted to ask uh, Yishan, I'm, I'm curious about this, as I'm, I'm always curious about someone who's committed themselves to um, so, so, uh, so completely to their, their religious tradition. Um, if there's one thing that you like or do that people would not associate with being very uh, monk-like or nun-like, for example, if you really love listening to heavy metal music or you're an excellent skateboarder, uh, anything like that that you'd like to share that gives us a little peek into your your life? You know, when I was young, like when I was in the middle school and high school, um, I, loved, I loved painting very much. And oh. I, actually, I did wow. a lot. But um, wow. I think I had a passion in creating <laughs> uh -huh. um, when I was young, but after, I think after I learned more about Buddhism, I think um, it's, it's kind of shifting in, in the mind. And I, I tend to, especially when you do meditation, um, you know <clears throat> how the mind is working. Hmm. I hmm. think you always want to, like, it's different from um, expression, right? Because painting or any kind of art is kind of expression of yourself, expression of your mind. But in the meditation, you just in that state, just look at your own mind and to observe how the mind itself working. That's mm. very interesting. That's like different kind of pleasure than <laughs> right and doing something outward. 
you're, you're doing all the painting inside. Yes, yeah. like that. So you can imagine, you can like daydreaming. It seems yes. similar. <laughs> I want to explore the gallery inside your mind. <laughs> wow, very, very exciting. Very yeah. exciting. Okay. Uh, Maka, what about you? You're an internationally celebrated artist. <laughs> very serious about your art and faith. Yeah. Do you have a a frivolous pleasure that also brings you joy, like a favorite TV show or something that would be unexpected? Well, my bride and I, uh, you know, started to watch these uh, Disney Channel series, WandaVision uh, <laughs> too. Oh, good. <laughs> so, so we're fully into it, and uh, yeah, and, and it's amazing how the pandemic. You know, we we can't go to a movie theater, but right. you know, we can binge watch all this. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, well, for those who listen to this uh, this show regularly, probably already know that I'm a huge comic book nerd. So oh, you and I have okay. that in common. Um, and uh, I had a privilege of meeting Stan Lee once. Uh, oh well, now you're just showing uh, off. There you go. So, uh, we, <laughs> we were able to honor him uh, with the National Medal of the Arts. Uh, we felt his contribution to culture was very significant. So beautiful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a legend for sure. For Absolutely. Sure. Wonderful. Well, this this took a, a nice unexpected turn. I'm very happy to, to hear uh, for both of you uh, share your reflections and to end with a, a little uh, gaiety and laughter. Um, so thank you so much for being available uh, to talk with me this morning. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for a wonderful conversation. Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. Thanks again to the Venerable Yushan Kian and Makoto Fujimura. Be sure to look for Mako's most recent book, Art and Faith, The Theology of Making. As always, a big thanks to my fellow interfaith astronauts Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, and our musical maestro Jeff Philosopher for providing our music. And you can find our entire back catalog of Interfaith-ish episodes wherever you find and enjoy podcasts. Remember to leave a rating or review. You can follow us on social media at Interfaith-ish and like our content there and tell us about what you've learned from our shows and write us about the Interfaith-ish that you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org. <laughs>